Previously, Peter examined the doctrines of salvation, obedience, holiness, and love. Beginning with 1 Peter 2.11, Peter explains how those doctrines apply in the realms of government, employment, and family. In each of these realms, there is one controlling thought, submission. Peter uses the doctrines of holiness and obedience, instructing believers to submit to government, 1 Peter 2.13-17. Next, he applies the doctrines of salvation and obedience, urging believers to submit to their employers, 1 Peter 2.18-25. Now, Peter uses the doctrines of love and obedience, instructing wives and husbands to submit to one another. Before God ordained government and the church, He ordained the family unit with the institution of marriage, Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage was created by God, not by society or a religious group. God brought together one man and one woman to be one flesh in marriage. And regardless of how society or religious groups want to define marriage, God has not changed His views. Matthew 19, 3-6 Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing Him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And He answered and said, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The family unit became the foundation of society. All other social structures find the family unit as their foundation. Social scientists view marriage as a foundational social institution because of its cross-culture and geographical nature. David Blankenhorn states that regardless of the variation in marital customs within different cultures, quote, marriage at its core is a woman and a man whose sexual union forms the basis of an important cooperative relationship, end quote. But society is only as strong as its foundation. If the foundation is destroyed, then what happens to the other societal institutions, such as the government and the church? The answer is simple. They will be weakened. Thus, Peter sets forth the duty of mutual submission between husbands and wives in 1 Peter 3, 1-7. So let's begin with verses 1 through 6, with the submissive behavior of wives. The submissive behavior of wives. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, 
which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right, and without being frightened by any fear. Now I want you to notice off the bat the phrase, in the same way, homoios. It indicates that just as Christ was characterized by submission, so are wives. Now the fact that the same phrase, in the same way, is used in verse 7 regarding husbands, indicates that they too are to be characterized by submission. As Paul declares in Ephesians 5.21, there is to be mutual submission between husbands and wives. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now the verbs be subject in Ephesians 5.21 and be submissive in 1 Peter 3.1 translate the same Greek verb, hupotasso. This is the same term which describes one's responsibility to human government and employment. It means to place oneself under another in an orderly fashion. The passive voice of the verb indicates that individuals place themselves voluntarily under those in authority. Voluntarily placing oneself under another does not imply inferiority. The woman was created equal to man to complete the man. God created the first woman by removing flesh and bone, specifically a rib, from Adam. Genesis 2.18 and 21-22 Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper, suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now in the Hebrew, rib, selah, means side. By taking the flesh and bone from Adam's side, man and woman stand equal before God. As well, God demonstrated that the woman was to be man's partner and companion. Matthew Henry said it best, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be beloved. Now by creating the woman from man's side, God deemed that man and woman should have an alongside relationship. The term helper further supports this relationship. The term helper, chazer, does not mean inferior, but instead one who complements or completes. The same term helper is used to denote God as a helper to his people. Psalm 70 verse 5. But I am afflicted and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. In fact, of the 21 times the term helper is used, 15 of those refer to God helping or coming alongside of humanity.
And since this term is applied to God, who is not subordinate or inferior to anyone, it certainly cannot be used to describe a woman as subordinate or inferior to men. Therefore, submission does not imply subordination or inferiority. Instead, it means yielding control to one another and seeking to do all you can do to please the other person. Now, the reason that Peter addresses the wife's submission first is due to cultural sensitivities. During the first century AD, wives were expected to accept the religion of their husbands. A wife who became a Christian would be considered unfaithful to her husband and his religion. Now, Plutarch, who was a Platonist and a priest of Apollo, a Roman citizen, lived between uh, AD 40 to AD 120. This gentleman stated, quote, A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and to shut the door to superstitious cults and strange superstitions. Thus the apostles encouraged obedience to various social structures so, they did that, so that they did not give credence to Rome's claims that Christians were stirring up a rebellion. Now one should note here that this submission is only to your own husbands. The phrase, your own husbands, demonstrates that Peter is not teaching that all women are subject to all men. Instead, he states that a wife is to be submissive to her own husband. As well, nowhere does Peter or Scripture imply that wives are inferior to their husbands. In fact, in verse 7, Peter will address the equality between husbands and wives. Now, submission to one's husband is not conditioned by their spiritual state. The phrase, if any of them are disobedient to the word, is a first-class conditional clause that assumes the statement to be true. As such, the if can be translated as sense. The word logos, as used in 1 Peter, refers to the gospel. And disobedient means to have an antagonistic view towards something. Hence, this clause can be translated as, since these husbands are antagonistic towards the gospel. Even if her husband is antagonistic toward the gospel, the wife should be submissive. And the purpose of the wife's submission is to win her husband without a word or verbal pleas. Now there's only so much that can be said before it falls on deaf ears. And because the gospel's verbal presentation had no effect, Peter calls upon wives to live out the gospel before their husbands. 
unbelieving husbands will be one as they observe the behavior or submissive attitude of their wives. And Peter uses the term behavior throughout his epistle to denote godliness. Next, Peter outlines three ways in which a submissive behavior is demonstrated. Three ways in which a submissive behavior is demonstrated. First, the wife's submissive behavior is chaste. Chaste. Now the word chaste, hagnos, is related to the word holiness, hagios, and it refers to moral purity. It means that they are to separate themselves from the bad ideas and practices of their generation's culture and society. Ladies, are you chaste? Are you separating yourselves from the bad ideas of this world? Are you separating yourselves from moral impurity? Are you separating yourselves from this generation's culture and society that is antagonistic towards God? Second, the wife's submissive behavior is respectable. It's to be respectable. The term respectable, phobos, is the same term used in verse 17 of chapter 2 and translated as fear towards God. In that same verse, Peter stated that believers honor all people but fear God, indicating that this fear or reverence is not towards her husband but to God. Wives should honor or respect their husbands but never reverence or fear them. Ephesians 5.33 Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Yes, there should be respect. Yes, there should be honor. But you're not to fear him. Ladies, who do you fear? You should only be fearing God. Not your husband's. Yes, you can respect them, you can honor them, but don't fear them. Only fear God. Now, whenever possible, wives should support and follow their husbands. But there are limits. Out of reverence for God, if your husband asks you to commit immorality or follow another religion even, you are to disobey. Now, those types of directives were socially radical in light of Roman culture, where a woman was expected to adopt her husband's religion and do whatever he asked of her. If he asks you to do something immoral or against God's word, you are to say no, because your submissive behavior is to be respectable or reverential towards God. Third, the wife's submissive behavior is to be a gentle and quiet spirit. Here Peter contrasts outward adornments with the inward person. Submission is not demonstrated 
in, the, in braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but with a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, Peter's admonition was similar here to the cultural moors of the Roman world. Again, Plutarch, the priest of Apollo, stated, It is not gold or precious stones or scarlet that makes her such, i.e. decorous, but whatever invests her with that something which betokens dignity, good behavior, and modesty. Now understand, Peter is not prohibiting women from doing their hair or wearing jewelry. Okay? Ladies, you're not prohibited from getting your hair done. You're not prohibited from wearing jewelry. He was prohibiting the spending of excessive amounts of money on outward adornments that were, would be viewed as seductive. Additionally, Peter was not commanding women to abandon clothing. His point was that wives should not wear outrageously expensive clothing or clothing that would be viewed as provocative. That Peter is quoting this common moral standard of the day was to exhort wives not to use their newfound liberty in Christ as a covering of evil. Peter dealt with that back in chapter 2 and verse 16. We're not to use our liberty as a cloak for evil. So they're newly saved and, oh, well, we can just do whatever we want. We've got liberty in Christ. Yes, you have liberty in Christ, but that doesn't mean that you start adopting styles that would be considered immoral or seductive. So ladies, you need to ask yourself, what, why do you wear what you wear? Why do you dress the way you dress? How, why do you do your hair the way you do your hair? Again, nothing wrong with those things. But if you're doing it to draw attention to yourself in a seductive fashion, then you need to repent of that. That's not a submissive behavior. That's a behavior that says, hey, I'm on the market. See, God is more interested in the hidden person of the heart instead of outward adornments. You see, the hidden person of the heart depicts the regenerated nature of a person. As Yahweh said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, God sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And therefore, ladies, especially you who are wives, you must focus on developing those inner qualities of godliness, namely a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle means to be characterized by humility. Quiet means causing no disturbance to others and can be translated as peaceful. So ladies, you're supposed to have a humble and peaceful spirit. Now I understand that we're predominantly dealing with wives. But these statements are for all women. 
Just as what, when we get to the husbands, those statements are going to, yes, they're particularly for husbands, but they're going to be applicable to all men. So, ladies, are you demonstrating a humble and peaceful spirit? Now, Paul uses the term quiet, the same term Peter uses here, esukios, in 1 Timothy 2, 1-15, to address issues detracting people from the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Let me just pause there before I go on. Notice the word quiet, hesukia, same term that's used describing ladies. And Paul uses the term and applies it to men and women. We may lead a quiet or peaceable life in all godliness and dignity, and we do that by prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving for all men, particularly for kings and those in authority. Now in verse 8, Peter continue, or Paul continues, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modesty and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly, there's that word, hesukia, receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Again, there's that word quiet, hesukia. Now, Paul's first admonishment involved women doing good deeds and not dressing indecently, but in a manner appropriate for women who worship God. Very similar to what Peter just stated. Paul's second admonishment to the women involves one commandment. A woman must receive instruction. There's only one commandment given there in those verses. A woman must receive instructions. All the phrases after that set the parameters of that command. And the parameters involve the term quietly. Quietly receive instruction does not entail not speaking. Instead, it means to learn with respect or lack of disagreement. Paul commanded women to learn, suggesting that Christian women were now granted equal rights to men when studying the scriptures. Equality was not the cultural norm, which is why they needed to learn in quietness or peaceably, with respect or lack of disagreement. Growing up in a repressive culture, some women overreacted to their freedom in Christ, flaunted that freedom, and disrupted the church service. Thus, Paul says, women were to learn in quietness and submission. By doing so, they would not hinder the reputation of the gospel in the community.
The term, do not allow, in 1 Timothy 2.12, is found nowhere else in the New Testament. The phrase does not prohibit a Christian woman from sharing a message or from facilitating a Bible class. The problem was not with women teaching in general, but that women placed themselves into a teaching position before they had been adequately taught. Thus, Paul temporarily banned women from teaching until they possessed the scriptural knowledge and wisdom necessary for teaching roles in the church. As well, interpreting this injunction to mean that women are not allowed to speak or teach in the church contradicts Paul's earlier statements that women prayed and prophesied openly in the church. 1 Corinthians 11.5 Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying and prophesying disgraces her head. She wasn't disgraced because she was praying and prophesying. She was disgraced because her head was uncovered. Women are only prohibited from holding the office of a bishop. 1 Timothy 3.2 A bishop then must be above reproach the husband of one wife. Now, Paul did command women to keep silent in the churches in 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, the term silent, the women are to keep silent, means to take one's turn in an orderly way. It does not mean to not speak. The phrase, let them ask their husbands at home, indicates that Paul is primarily concerned with women interrupting the church worship service, not women engaging in teaching. Again, he had just dealt with that a few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 11. A church worship service is not the proper setting for questions because it resulted in chaos and offended cultural sensibilities. Thus, the women were told to refrain from that behavior. Now, Peter emphasizes in verse 4 that a gentle and quiet spirit is precious in the sight of God. Precious is a financial term indicating that a gentle and quiet spirit is extremely valuable or costly. While the world views expensive or ornate hairstyles, jewelry, and clothing as things of great value, God says that it is the inward qualities of godliness that are indeed of great value. Ladies, what do you have that God values? Do you have that gentle and quiet spirit? That's what God's looking for. Peter concludes his exhortation to wives with the example of holy women of former times. The former times refers to the Old Testament era. These women are holy, indicating that they were set apart to God and lived in a manner pleasing to Him. The reference to Sarah in verse 6 suggests that the women in view were Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. These women hoped in God. Hope is a frequent term used in 1 Peter, chapter 1, 3 through 9, verse 13, 21, and again in chapter 3 and verse 15. 
Hope is not a wishful thinking, but an eager, confident expectation centered on the triune God that He will reward those who place their trust in Him. These women adorn themselves in the attitude and actions of submission. Well, what is that? That's that gentle and quiet spirit. That's that respectable or reverence for God. And that is that chaste or moral purity. They submitted to their husbands, not because their husbands were more intelligent or spiritual. In many cases, their husbands were neither. Instead, they submitted because they believed that God would reward them. Again, ladies, yes, wives, but I'm opening it to all ladies. What do you adorn yourself with? Make sure you're adorning yourself with moral purity. Make sure you're adorning yourself with uh, reverence for God. And make sure you're adorning yourself with a, a gentle, humble, and quiet or peaceable spirit. Now, Sarah's submission to her husband is demonstrated when she obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, immediately we read that and, you know, the hair stands up on the back of our heads. I'm not calling my husband Lord. I'm not calling any man Lord. And that's okay. You see, in modern culture, no wife calls their husband Lord or Master. And furthermore, Peter is not admonishing wives to address their husbands in such a manner. Sarah's referring to her husband as Lord depicted the cultural norm of the Near Eastern region in that era. Another example of cultural language that would be questioned today is Jesus' manner of addressing his mother in John 2.24, woman. Today, a son or daughter addressing their mother in such a way would not only be viewed as impolite, but disrespectful. Jesus, however, following the cultural norm, was not impolite and intended no disrespect. The point that Peter's making is that wives should address their husbands according to the customary addresses of their culture. Peter's example of Sarah comes from Genesis 8-2. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? In the context, Sarah found it to be ridiculous that her and Abraham would conceive a child in their old age. Remarkably, as ridiculous as it may be, Sarah still referred to her husband with dignity and honor. As Abraham is the father of those who believe, Sarah is the mother of believers. Isaiah 51, 1 and 2. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you are hewn, and to the quarry from which you are dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. Peter states that Christian wives have become her children. The verb, ginomai, have become, is in the aorist tense, indicating that these wives were already believers. They're not becoming believers, they have already become believers. The phrase, if you do right, which is just one word in the Greek, is a circumstantial participle, not a conditional clause. As a circumstantial participle, doing what is right is produced by being a believer. Doing what is right is being submissive. Without being frightened is also a circumstantial participle. Again, just one word in the Greek. That is, their husbands or societal pressures should not intimidate wives. 
having a gentle and quiet spirit doesn't mean, ladies, you have to be weak or cowardly. Again, ladies, you can be submissive. You can voluntarily place yourself under another person without allowing that person to intimidate or manipulate you. Don't allow any man, even your husband, or the society you live in to intimidate you or manipulate you to do something that you're not comfortable with or that would be displeasing to God. Now let's go on to verse 7 and look at the submissive behavior of husbands. Verse 7, you husbands, notice the phrase, in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Peter turns his attention to the duties of husbands. Again, he uses the phrase in the same way, indicating that just as wives are to be characterized by submission, so are husbands. And as previously stated, there is to be mutual submission between husbands and wives. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 and 4. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. That's mutual submission. Peter outlined three behaviors by which wives demonstrate submission to their husbands. By being chaste or morally pure, by being respectable or reverence for God, and by having a gentle and quiet spirit, being humble and peaceable. Now he provides two ways in which husbands submit to their wives. First, the husband's submissive behavior is to be one of understanding. Understanding carries the idea of wisdom or knowledge. The term live has a twofold meaning. One, the term live means to enjoy marital intimacy only with one spouse. Again, such a statement was radical in light of the Greco-Roman views on marriage. Again, according to Plutarch, husbands could have liaisons with other women, and their wives were to accept their husbands' extramarital affairs. Thus, Peter's exhortation involved husbands viewing their wives as more than just their legitimate heirs' mothers. She was to be his one and only woman. Two, the term live means to conduct oneself in a particular manner. Husbands are to conduct themselves in an understanding manner towards their wives. That means they must know and understand their wives' needs, desires, strengths, weaknesses, fears, hopes, and respond appropriately. How about it, guys? Do you know your wife's needs, desires, strengths, weaknesses, fears, hopes, and are you responding appropriately? Today, women are expected to be the understanding ones in the relationship. The Bible, however, places that responsibility on the men, on the husbands. As well, understanding includes loving one's wife and not becoming bitter or resentful towards her. Colossians 3.19 Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Peter gives the reason for being understanding and that is because a wife is a woman. I know, it's, it's shocking. Because she's a woman, Peter says she is someone weaker. Now the phrase someone weaker would be better translated as a weaker vessel. The term vessel refers figuratively to the body. Weaker implies a lack of strength. 
not moral, spiritual, or intellectual weakness. Okay, that's not what is meant here. See, in the Greco-Roman culture, women had no strength. They had few privileges and very little, if any, rights. And Peter uses the term to denote that husbands are to be the ones protecting and providing for her needs, especially in a culture that disparages women. So men, how about it? Are you protecting and providing for your wife's needs? Are you understanding of them? Are you respecting her opinions and listening to her advice? And you know, this is good for all men. Okay, yes, particularly husbands towards their wives, but for all men. Listen, women are not less than you men. Women are not inferior to you. They're not morally inferior. They're not spiritually inferior. They're not intellectually inferior. And we still live in a culture that disparages women. And therefore, as Christian men, we need to be setting the example of protecting and providing in a, in, in a fashion that they're not being taken advantage of or abused, maligned, or what have you. And it is good for us to keep an open ear and listen to their opinions and to their advice. Don't just look down, well, she's just a woman. That's not what the Bible says. She's a helpmate. She's a complimenter. Second, the husband's submissive behavior is to honor their wives. Honor is a state of being valued or being in a position of distinction. Show is to give something as proper or just. That is, it is proper to give value to one's wife. In other words, a wife is to be treated as a valuable and delicate instrument. A doctor would not use a specialized surgical instrument to pound nails. Instead, he treats it well. And so, husbands, that's how you're to treat your wife. Well, as a specialized surgical instrument. Build her up emotionally and spiritually. Don't tear her down. Proverbs 31, 28 to 29, her husband also praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Husbands, you're to honor your wives because they are fellow heirs of the grace of life. That is, men and women are equal partakers of eternal life. There is fundamentally or fundamental equality between men and women. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And stressing that equality was radical in Peter's day. You see, during the first century A.D., women were viewed dismally at best. The Greeks viewed women as inferior to men. As a result, women led lives of seclusion, slavery, and even temple prostitution. Romans viewed women as inferior to men. They treated their wives so poorly that a husband's mistress often received more honor than his wife. Among the Jewish Pharisees, women were inferior to men, and they were less than Gentiles and slaves. Women were prohibited from receiving a formal education. They were relegated to perform household chores. They were prohibited from studying the Torah. And Jesus broke with every one of those cultural mores of his day regarding the role of women. 
He taught female students. He referred to women as daughters of Abraham, making them equal to men. He took on women as disciples. He appeared first to women following his resurrection. He expressed concern for widows. He touched and healed women, ignoring ritual impurity laws. He spoke with Jewish and Gentile women. He changed the male-favored view of divorce, stating if a man can divorce a woman, then a woman can divorce a man. He demanded women from, or excuse me, defended women from false accusations and offered them salvation. He accepted worship from women, and he commissioned women to be witnesses of the resurrection. My friends, men and women were created by God to be united as one in order to manifest the image of God, Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The original relationship between husbands and wives was not hierarchical. Instead, it was a union of two equals, but wonderfully different individuals, both made in God's image. When a husband does not submit to his wife with understanding and honor, his prayers are hindered or thwarted. The term yours, your prayer, relates explicitly to the husband, not the wives. A husband must have a right relationship with his wife if he is to have a right relationship with God. If you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, go and first be reconciled, then come and present your offering. Matthew 5, 23-24. Paul Actamir states, The point is clear. Men who transfer cultural notions about the superiority of men over women into the Christian community lose their ability to communicate with God. How, be it? How about it, men? How do you view women? How do you view your wives? Is your view of your wife, is your relationship with your wife hindering your prayers or worship of God? Paul admonished husbands to love their wives in the same manner that Christ loved the church, submissively, and sacrificially, Ephesians 5.25. Friends, there is to be a mutual submission between husbands and wives. Ephesians 5.21 says to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That means husbands and wives need to abandon the power struggle that has prevailed since the fall and express the lordship of Christ in their relationship. You husbands and wives, is your relationship demonstrating the lordship of Christ to your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, your friends, your neighbors, your church family? Sadly, many marital problems exist, not all, but many, exist because of a failure to mutually submit to one another. Instead, husbands and wives are trying to dominate one another so that their perceived needs are met. The biblical pattern is for a husband and wife to yield mutual control to one another and seek to do all they can to please the other and make them prosper. Nowhere in scriptures are husbands given the authority to demand that their wives submit to them. I am so sick and tired of hearing that nonsense. Husbands are to love and care for their wives as their bodies, and wives should respect their husbands. And if a husband loves his wife like Jesus loved the church, what woman wouldn't be willing to, to yield to his admonition or advice? This teaching for Christian marriages, when lived out, will restore intimacy, it'll remove selfish pride, and it'll make irrelevant the age-old question, who's the boss? Now before I close, I want to answer a question that was posed to me not too long ago. Must a wife submit to an abusive husband? Must a wife submit to an abusive husband? 
Domestic abuse is an act, whether actual or threatened, of violence against someone with whom the perpetrator is or has been intimately involved. Domestic abuse is not limited to physical assault. It includes verbal, sexual, emotional, economic, and physiological assault. And domestic abuse is in direct conflict with God's plans for relationships. As stated, there's to be mutual submission between husbands and wives. Within the scope of marriage, husbands and wives are to be one flesh. Abuse or violence against one spouse violates the one flesh principle. Dr. Craig Keener, professor of biblical studies at Asbury Theological Seminary, states, quote, If a husband is beating his wife, that would certainly seem to be to violate the one flesh union. If he were beating himself, we'd recommend psychiatric help. If he is beating his wife, who is supposed to be one flesh with him, he is certainly not treating her as one flesh. When there is a violation, friends, of the one flesh union, it is incumbent for the victim or those associated with him or her to take the necessary steps to stop the cycle of violence. Each case of domestic abuse is different and will require different solutions. However, depending on the severity of abuse, it may be necessary to remove the victim from the situation. And should the situation necessitate, separation and divorce may be the morally right action due to the violation of the one flesh union. Again, Dr. Keener states, quote, There does come a point where discretion is the better part of valor. Some people are too ready to grasp for that point. Others wait much longer than they should. Jesus told those persecuted for his name to flee from one city to another to escape persecution, Matthew 10, 23, and sometimes the apostles did so, Acts 14, 5, and 6. It is heartless to make someone remain in an abusive situation. Matthew 10, 23, but whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Acts 14, 5, and 6. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for our uh, text this morning. And Lord, we just would ask and pray that, uh, Lord, you would help us to examine ourselves as men and women, uh, that we would consider uh, our behavior uh, as servants of Christ. And particularly, Father, for men and women who are husbands and wives, that, Lord, they're demonstrating to a lost and dying world the relationship between Christ and the church. That, Father, where there needs to be mutual submission, it would be demonstrated and lived out. That, Father, each woman might examine herself and to make sure that she's living a morally pure life, a chaste life, that she's respectable or living a life of reverence or fear to you and you alone. And that, Father, she's exhibiting a gentle and peaceable spirit. Of course, all those things can be applied to men as well. And, Father, as men, particularly husbands, but to all men, and, Father, we, we have an understanding spirit of, of women. And that, Lord, we also would have uh, an honorable attitude towards them, that we would honor them for who they are, that uh, we would see them uh, the way you see them, uh, not somebody uh, below our feet, not somebody to clean up after us, but, Lord, somebody who you made as our co-equal to help us, to aid us, 
in displaying your image to a lost and dying world. Father, help us in this realm of mutual submission. And that, Father, in how we behave towards one another, it would be in a manner that glorifies you and that sets an example, again, of Christ and the church. We pray in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.